Good morning, everybody. Hey, Michael. I'm missing the clicker. Any chance you could run that up here? Uh, good to see everybody. Hope everybody's had a fantastic week. I just want to reiterate what Jason said at the beginning, which is uh, if you are visiting with us, we are so honored that you are here, and we hope that you are encouraged by your visit. I hope you'll take a few minutes afterwards to just stick around and let us get to know you a little bit better. Um, got a couple very special guests this morning. I don't want to embarrass them, but uh, our good friends Eric and Rebecca are here. Thanks, dude. Um, joining us from Yorba Linda, they are uh, been very special friends of ours for a long time, and so I'm excited to see their faces. And uh, if you guys could just stand up and do a short dance so everybody knows who you are, that would be fantastic. <laughs> yeah, fat chance. Uh, if you want to be turning over to John chapter 3, I want to encourage you to do that. That's where we're going to be taking our lesson this morning in the first 21 verses. Uh, for time's sake, we're going to split that into two different lessons. Uh, so I encourage you to turn over there. And I uh, also want to encourage you, if you're able, to take some notes this morning. Got a lot of material to cover, and there's a lot of references that I want to give to you that we won't have a lot of time to dive into, but at least give you those tools so you can do some more study on your own this week as you get time. I was feeling pretty fancy today. I got this new jacket. Even had to cut the, cut the tags off of it. And then I put it on this morning, and I was feeling extra fancy because I didn't realize when I bought it, it came with this, you know, those like pocket handkerchiefs that even color matched my shirt. I was like, this is nice. And then I realized actually it was just the pocket was turned inside out and sticking up. So I'm glad I caught that as the, at the last minute because uh, that would have been embarrassing. So, all right, John chapter 3 is where we are at this morning. If you'd like to follow along with me, let me just read through the text and then we'll get into it. John chapter 3. Now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old, Nicodemus said. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the Son of Man, the, the, except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done 
has been done in the sight of God. So this morning, we're going to cover the first 13 verses, and we're going to save the second half for next week. But as we think about this encounter Jesus has with this Pharisee, this, this Jewish teacher, this ruler of the Jewish people named Nicodemus, I want to take our minds back to actually the last few verses of the previous chapter because this sets up the conversation that Nicodemus has. This is kind of a commentary that John gives that introduces us to the character of Nicodemus. So in John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, we read this. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, now remember when Aaron preached this text a few weeks ago, this is when on the heels of Jesus cleansing out the temple, it said many people saw what specifically? The signs that he was performing. Many people saw the signs that he was performing and believed in his name. So there's a direct correlation between what people are thinking about Jesus and what he's doing. The signs that he's performing are leading people to faith in him. They believed in his name, but then we get this interesting commentary. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. Jesus is wary of this belief because it's not a firmly held belief yet. There's this kind of interest in what Jesus is doing, and people are coming to belief in him, but he can't trust them yet because it's still a shallow foundation for belief. And so he says he did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. And this commentary serves as a setup for what happens next. Among those people who saw what Jesus was doing and were starting to believe in him was this man named Nicodemus. And it's illustrative of this reality that Jesus knew he couldn't trust people's faith yet. Nicodemus illustrates that reality for us. And so we get into the text then, and we're introduced to this man. It says, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. So Two things, he's a Pharisee, number two, he's a member of the Jewish ruling council. So he's a man of high standing among the Jewish people. He is a teacher and a leader of God's people in Israel, but he's also a Pharisee. We're going to spend some time in a future lesson talking about exactly who the Pharisees were, but for now just understand it's one of the two major sects that made up the Jewish people at the time, and they were hugely influential when it came to teaching the common people. So this teacher of the Jews comes to Jesus, and just a couple things about Nicodemus. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, don't mention Nicodemus, but John does in two other places. Number one, in John chapter 7, and one of the things that's interesting is, I think you'll see as we go along through the story, you're kind of wondering to yourself, what category do I put Nicodemus in? Is he a believer or not? Is he really bought into who Jesus is or not? And the text is kind of ambiguous about this, I think on purpose, so that we can do a little bit of interjecting ourselves into the story. We'll talk about that more later on. But one thing we do know is that in John chapter 7, and verse 50 through 51, the Pharisees and the ruling class have decided they're going to arrest Jesus. And yet the people that they sent to arrest him come back empty-handed. And so they're very angry. You know, you didn't buy into what he was saying, did you? Why didn't you arrest him? And we find Nicodemus make this statement. It says, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who is one of their own number, asked, does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? And so Nicodemus is kind of coming to the side of Jesus a little bit later on. And I think that tells us something about Nicodemus. And then later on in John chapter 19, even more telling, we read this. 
we're told about after Jesus was crucified, uh, a man, a, a wealthy man, takes down his body, Joseph of Arimathea, and he's going to bury him in his own tomb. And Nicodemus is there with him. It says he was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. So what can we say about the faith of Nicodemus? What happened as a result of this whole conversation? Well, we don't know for sure, but we know at least that he has some concern for Jesus. At the very least, he's an admirer of the man Jesus. And we find him two other places in John. What's interesting is, as we read in verse 2, is that he comes to Jesus when? At night, right? Now, is this a commentary on the fact that he's afraid to be seen by day? That's how a lot of people have traditionally read this. I don't know for certain, but I do know that it makes for a, a good point of emphasis later on in this passage when John uses this as a way to illustrate something about those who would come to Jesus, the fact that he came by night. So we'll save that conversation for next week. But this is what he does. He comes to Jesus with a statement identifying who Jesus is. And he seems pretty certain that he's figured out who Jesus is. He comes and he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. And why does he know that? Because no one could perform the signs you are doing if God were not with him. Those are the first steps into faith, are they not? Recognizing at least where Jesus has come from. You are a teacher come from God, and I know that because I've seen what you've done. So he's got this initial confidence in who he thinks Jesus is. And what I find to be very interesting is that Jesus replies to that statement. Nicodemus isn't asking a question. He's making a statement. But Jesus replies as if he's asked a question. And this is what Jesus says as a follow-up. Jesus replied very truly. Now let me pause for just a second. Three times in this conversation, Jesus uses this turn of phrase, very truly, or verily, verily, or truly, truly, some translations have. It's a, a way of, of illustrating the importance of what he's about to say. And Jesus was fond of using this method of speaking. So very truly, maybe a common way of saying it, of, 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 of speech to get this idea across would be something along the lines of pay attention because I'm serious about what I'm about to say, right? Or honestly, you can believe what I'm about to tell you. It's just this way of introducing something to get someone's attention, pay attention to what I'm about to tell you. So very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. This is a text that is familiar to most people. In fact, later on, verse 16 is, I think, without question, the most familiar Bible passage in the world, for God so loved the world. We know that passage, right? There is a challenge in approaching any passage that we are very familiar with, and it's twofold. Number one, we feel like we know it so well that there's nothing left to learn, and so we just kind of casually dismiss it. But also, there's the challenge that we might be so eager to find something new that we try to read outside the boundaries of what Christianity has taught us about this passage for 2,000 years. I know it's interesting to find something novel in Scripture, but I would encourage you to be very wary of anyone who says, I have discovered something new in the Bible. Rediscovering something ancient? 
That can be beautiful and that can be powerful. But anyone saying, I've discovered something no one in the 2,000-year history of Christianity has ever discovered before, that should put you on notice. Pay very careful attention to what is said next, right? So we're not going to do either of those things. We're not going to try to discover something new, and we're not going to dismiss it because we already know it, but we're going to do the best we can to try to understand what this text is doing and what it's informing us of. I just find it so interesting that Jesus says something seemingly totally disconnected to the statement that Nicodemus made. You are a teacher come from God. What does this have to do with that statement? Well, I think everything. Because Jesus is trying to get at the root of what this teacher thinks he knows in contrast to what he should know. And I think that's the the bottom line, what's happening in this entire conversation. Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are, what? Born again. So two things we need to pay attention to in this statement. Number one, what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Why does Jesus begin speaking about the kingdom of God? Let me just share something with you that I find of interest. If you look at the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all spend a lot of time talking about the kingdom, either the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, depending on on which uh, gospel you're reading from. But they have Jesus addressing the kingdom a lot. For example, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, as Jesus begins his ministry, from that time on Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, or the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the thrust of Jesus preaching. Good news, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and that theme runs throughout the gospel of Matthew. In fact, if you turn over to Matthew chapter 13, you've got this series of parables Jesus is teaching, and all of them start with, the kingdom of heaven is like. Jesus is concerned about people understanding the nature of the kingdom of God. Then if you go to Mark, Mark chapter 1 verses 14 and 15, after John the Baptist was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. This is what he said, the time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near or it is at hand. Repent and believe And the good news, this is the major thrust of Jesus preaching, that the kingdom of heaven is here. Likewise, in Luke, in Luke chapter 1, verses 32 through 33, as the angel appears to Mary and is preparing her for what's going to happen, this is what he says about the son that she will bear. He will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. That's kingdom language. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And we've talked at length about all of those promises God gave to Israel and how Jesus fulfilled all of those. I love that song that uh, Skeeter sang for us, uh, one of the songs this morning, uh, talking about the kingdom. I love the passage uh, that Floyd read for us this morning. That psalm, at the very end of that psalm, you'll notice, what does it say? Let the king live forever. Right? Well, that psalm is written by David, and he's asking blessings on, on his kingship, his kingdom. But of course, Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of all of that. And who is the king that we serve today but Jesus? So, Just to point out that the synoptics have a lot to say about the kingdom, and we should pay attention to all of that kingdom talk. We talk a lot about the church today. We don't say a lot about the kingdom, and I think that's a shame. Because the Gospels have a lot to say about the kingdom. In contrast to the synoptics, though, John does not have a lot to say about the kingdom. In fact, there's only two times when kingdom conversations 
come up in the Gospel of John. This is one of them, and the other is actually at the end of John's Gospel. In John chapter 18, as Jesus appears before Pilate, and Pilate is trying to wrap his mind around who this man is and why the Jews want him dead, he asks him bluntly, are you the king of the Jews? You remember Jesus' response. Jesus said, my kingdom is not, you can fill in the blank, what? Of this world. We know that. We quote that. We reference that. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. And it's just these two places that John highlights kingdom conversations. By the way, if you go back into that passage, I love what Pilate does next. You remember he says, aha, you are a king. (laughs) He's figuring it out. And he was indeed a king, just not the king people were expecting. But what is the kingdom of God? All of that just to say this, Jesus doesn't answer that in this passage. He does not go on to give a lengthy description of what the kingdom of God is. That is for us to discover together as we go into this gospel. What is the kingdom of God? Jesus is talking about those who want to know the answer to that question, and he's saying the only way you will ever discover the kingdom of God is if you are what? Born again. This is what he's trying to get us to think about. You want to know what the kingdom of God is? You can't even see it unless you are first born again. Or that word that's translated born again there has a dual meaning. It can also mean born from above. It's referencing a spiritual rebirth. And this term, of all terms in modern day Christianity, this term is one of the most common. Are you a born again Christian? Have you been born again? That, that has entered our common vernacular and that term has become synonymous with contemporary Christian conversion experiences as people talk about their journey to faith. I was born again. Well, where are they getting that terminology from? Right here in John chapter 3. It's biblical terminology, but the question is, what does it mean? What does it mean to be a born-again Christian? What is Jesus trying to get us to understand about the idea that if we're going to see the kingdom of God, we have to first be born again? What does it mean? Let's think about that for just a second. The process of spiritual rebirth is many things. It is deep. It's not shallow. It's a deep, transformative, regenerative, and eye-opening experience. To be born again, it changes everything about who we are, how we identify ourselves, and most importantly, how we see things. And this is at the heart of what Jesus is trying to teach Nicodemus. If you want to see the kingdom of God, you got to be born again because it changes the way that you're able to see things. I think about John chapter 9. Jesus heals a man who from birth was blind. And as the Jewish authorities get word of this, they find that man, they find his parents, and they question him, and they're trying to figure out who it was that healed him and why it was that he was healed. And remember, this guy doesn't have any idea what's going on yet. And it says a second time they summon the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they say, by telling the truth, as if he's lying about the whole thing. They said, we know this man is a sinner. You remember his response? He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know. I was blind, but what? But now I see. Now, of course, that's literal in that passage, right? But there's great figurative spiritual dimension to this illustration that all of us find ourselves in that situation when we come to that journey of being reborn, being born from above. That we can see things anew. We see things in a new light. We can discern spiritual 
truths. This is a deep, transformative, regenerative, eye-opening experience. And this is what Jesus is trying to invite Nicodemus into. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4. We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too might live what kind of life? A new life. Regenerative. A new life. Transformative. A new life. We're not the same people we used to be outside of Christ. In Christ, we are brand new creatures. And it changes our perspective on everything, at least it should. And of course, all of this calls us back to language John used in the prologue. Remember when we went through the prologue, I said, this is all setting the stage for themes that would come up over and over again in this gospel. This is what John says in the prologue. Yet to all who did receive him, this is Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Pay attention to what he says. Children born, not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. To be born again or to be born from above, this is all pointing back to what John told us about what Jesus is offering us right away in the prologue, this new birth. In verse 4, Nicodemus illustrates to us that he has not experienced that regeneration yet. He has not experienced that new birth because he's still not able to see through a spiritual lens. He's still stuck in that physical place. And so for him, when Jesus says these things, he has no idea what to make of them. And so this is the question he asks as a follow-up. How can someone be born when they're old? Surely they can't enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born again. This is, I mean, the most literal way you can take Jesus' words. This is how Nicodemus is hearing them, right? He's not able to hear the spiritual truths that Jesus is teaching him, and so he's stuck in this place. I don't understand. This doesn't make any sense. And so Jesus gives an answer even to that. As a follow-up, this is what he says in verse 5. Here's our second very truly. Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of what? Two things, water and the Spirit. So you need to be born again or born from above. And as a way of clarifying, Jesus says, okay, let me make this clear. You need to be born of water and the Spirit. So let's think about those two things critically. Number one, what does it mean to be born of water? Is this a reference to water baptism? Or is it a reference to the water that's held in the womb and comes out at birth? Is it a reference to physical birth? And people have strong opinions about both of those. Some people, in an attempt to downplay the significance of baptism in the Christian conversion experience, will argue that this has nothing to do with water baptism and everything to do with physical birth. Some of us, in an attempt to counter that, will say it has nothing to do with physical birth and everything to do with water baptism. So what, which is it? I don't know. <laughs> Both, I think. I think it's unfair to discount one in favor of the other just to make a point. I think he's referencing both. But, here's the thing. I think lost in that argument back and forth is the real context behind the illustration Jesus is making. We've already seen how everything Jesus says is in conversation with the Scriptures, right? And so is there a place in Scripture that might help us understand what Jesus is trying to get across here? And the answer is yes. There absolutely is, and it's in Ezekiel chapter 36. 
In Ezekiel chapter 36, God is helping his people understand why they've been through what they've been through. It's because of their own stubbornness of heart and disobedience. And so God is at work through them to regenerate them and renew them and bring them back into a truly spiritual relationship with him. And so as he talks about what they can look forward to, this is what he says. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. What is this passage about? It's about God regenerating and renewing his people by sprinkling them clean with water, washing them, and then giving them what? A new spirit. His spirit. And here we have Jesus talking about this new birth from above that's going to be of water and of spirit. And I think this is the background that Jesus has in mind when he's talking about these things. Sometimes we get so caught up trying to make arguments that we forget to let the Bible say what the Bible's trying to say. The word spirit, what about spirit? So born of water and born of the spirit. Well, a few things you need to understand about the word spirit when it appears to us in the New Testament text. The word spirit doesn't always mean spirit. Sometimes it can mean breath or wind. Actually, right here in this chapter, later on in verse 8, it says the wind blows where it wants to. It's the same word that's translated spirit. The word spirit doesn't always mean holy spirit, as in the third person of the Godhead. Sometimes Scripture does us the favor of using the word holy in conjunction with spirit, the Holy Spirit, and so we know it's in reference to the person of the Spirit. But other times it's just spirit, and we have to use the clues that are available to us in that text to figure out what spirit is being referred to here. So what is Jesus talking about here? Which spirit is he talking about? Well, let me just suggest to you that, again, it's both. In a minute, he's going to talk about spirit as a wind that blows, but Whenever Jesus is talking about the Spirit, I think it would be totally unfair to discount the work of the Holy Spirit in the ministry of Jesus. Let's not forget how closely connected Jesus is with the work of God's Spirit. In John chapter 1, 32 through 33, again back to chapter 1, then John gave this testimony, John the Baptist, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I mentioned before how the synoptics say a lot more about the kingdom than John does. John says a lot more about the Spirit than the synoptics do. And when you get into John chapters 14 through 16, there's entire conversations Jesus has having with his disciples about the coming of the Helper or the Spirit. So I think all of that is in mind here as Jesus is talking to Nicodemus about this. He goes on and he says this in verses 6 through 8, but flesh gives birth to flesh, spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases, you hear it sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. Now let me just pause and I want to ask you a serious question. Is this crystal clear? You've got it now, right? I can just dismiss you when we figure this whole thing out. Okay, how many of you are challenged still by what Jesus says in this passage? Anybody have some questions? Okay, 
Okay, you are in the company of Nicodemus with those questions. Look at what happens next. This is the question Nicodemus says. This is all he can think to say. How can this be? I don't, I don't understand. I'm confused. Make this make sense for me. You go back to this, and if you're reading it and you're thinking, okay, this is clear as mud, help me understand this, that's exactly Nicodemus' response here. Okay, Jesus, I know you're trying to make this more clear for me, but I'm just getting more confused. How can this be? And I want to take a moment to talk about this phenomenon. A lot of times we talk about Scripture, and I think especially in the context of our movement, as if it is the most intuitive thing you will ever read. Sometimes that's true. Sometimes you read a Scripture, and instantly it makes sense, and it connects with you on a deeper level. But when's the last time you read a scripture and were left with a lot more questions than you started with after you got done reading it? Be honest. Some scripture is difficult to understand. Think about the Ethiopian eunuch. And he's reading from Isaiah 53. Do you understand what you're reading? What was his answer? Do you remember? How can I unless what? Someone explains it to me. In the beginning with that passage, he preached Jesus to him. Isaiah 53 only started to make sense when it was understood in the context of the resurrected Christ. And that's what I want you to think about this morning. Jesus spoke to people with a post-resurrection perspective. It hadn't happened yet, but from Jesus' point of view, from the eternal point of view, it had already happened because he knew God's plan. And so he's able to speak to people with a post-resurrection perspective. The problem is when people are hearing him say that, they're listening with a pre-resurrection mindset. They don't have the tools necessary to fully understand the spiritual truths behind this mysterious, these mysterious things that Jesus is teaching them. And so it's only natural sometimes when you approach Scripture to say, I don't understand what this is about. But God did not give us Scripture to leave us perpetually confused by its meaning. You can understand Scripture, not by applying yourself fully, not by studying extra hard, not because you're more brilliant than anybody else in this room alongside you, but because Jesus, through the Spirit, has made it clear to you. There is something spiritual happening when Jesus allows us to see spiritual truths that others can't understand. In John chapter 2 and verse 22, after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. They didn't know what to do with what Jesus was doing until after he was resurrected, and then it made sense to them. We get to read the story with a post-resurrection perspective, don't we? And a lot of those things they struggled with now can make sense to us because we understand them through the lens of the crucified and risen Savior. John chapter 6 and verse 60. I can't wait to get into this chapter in a few weeks. There's so much here. People are totally confused by what Jesus is saying. You have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Can you imagine hearing that for the first time? You're going to be confused, right? And so this is what happens. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, many of his disciples, by the way, not just people who'd never heard of him, his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? You remember what happened after that? A lot of them left and stopped following him. They were so confused by what he said. They weren't able to process the spiritual truths 
behind these challenging things Jesus was saying. And finally, Matthew chapter 13. If you would quickly just turn over here with me. I want to show you something. In Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13, starting in verse 10, Jesus has just shared with them the parable of the sower. And before he explains the meaning of the parable, the disciples have a question. In verse 10, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? Now, a lot of times we talk about parables as if they are a tool to make things make more sense. So Jesus spoke in parables to make things easier to understand. Come on now. Have you ever read the parables? Sometimes they end up confusing us even more, right? So they just ask him, why are you using this as a teaching tool? Why do you speak in parables? Listen to his response. He replied, verse 11, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. I'm speaking to them in parables so that those who can spiritually discern can know what I'm saying, and those who cannot are going to walk away confused. Imagine that. Verse 14, in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears. They have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their ears, hear with their ears, sorry, see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes because they see. And your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people longed to see what you see but did not see it. And to hear what you hear but did not hear it. The point of this isn't just to say, Jesus said some tough things. Good luck figuring them out. Jesus did say some challenging things. But through spiritual rebirth, we can discern spiritual truths in those challenging things. He does not want us to stay confused forever. He wants us to know his will. But that can only happen when we have our eyes open through that regenerative renewal process of spiritual rebirth. We have to be born from above. Okay, so verse 10. This is Jesus' response to Nicodemus' confusion. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. And this is the whole drama of this entire encounter wrapped up in one statement. Remember how Nicodemus is introduced to us. He is introduced to us as someone of prominence. He is a teacher. He is a teacher of Israel. And here this teacher of Israel comes to Jesus recognizing him as a teacher and he cannot understand what he's saying. What a commentary this is on the state of God's people. Their own teachers can't understand the Son of Man when he shows up and explain spiritual realities to them. And if their teachers can't understand, what does that say about the rest of us? How badly do we need someone to help us understand these things? Who is it going to be? We'll get to that in just a second. John chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. Very truly, I will tell you, we speak. So here's our, our third very truly. We speak of what we know. We testify of what we have seen. But still, you, in the plural, NIV translates it, you people, do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? 
How are you going to understand the rest of what I have to teach you if you're stuck right here in this place? And you can imagine how frustrated Nicodemus must have been in that moment. And then we get to this verse, and this is it. This is where we're going to stop today. This is what Jesus says. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. He's talking about himself. And I think this is the key to understanding this entire encounter here. We read all of Scripture as if it is prescriptive. All of Scripture. And what I mean by that is we, like every verse we can open to in the Bible, we read it as if it's giving us instruction on what we're supposed to go and do. Now there is a truth in that. Much of Scripture is prescriptive, and there's some application to nearly all of Scripture, but let's remember what John says at the end of John chapter 20. Why did he write this gospel? So that we would know what to do? So that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing we might have life in his name. He writes this book so that we can understand who Jesus is. So I'm just trying to point out that when we read passages like this as if they are just giving us instruction, we miss the point. The point of this passage is to help us determine who Jesus is. And I think that's the whole point of Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus. Jesus is trying to address that first statement Nicodemus makes. I know that you are a teacher from God. Yes, I am. But I'm much more than that. And that's what Nicodemus was having trouble understanding. And until he came to terms with the true identity of Jesus, was Jesus a teacher come from God? Yes. But he was the Son of God. He was the Anointed One. He was the Christ. He was the Messiah. He was the fulfillment of every promise made to Israel. He was so much more than just another gifted teacher. And until Nicodemus came to terms with that, he would be perpetually confused. And so will we. Because until we can see the truth revealed in Scripture through the lens of Jesus, understanding who he is, we will be confused forever. So Jesus says to Nicodemus, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven. Who is it that is true, the only person ever, who has been born from above, from the Spirit, and born of flesh? Only one person has ever been that, and that's Jesus the Christ. And so this isn't a passage about, okay, let's read this now. we got to go figure out how to get reborn so that we can become smarter and understand Scripture better. This is a passage about the identity of Jesus. That apart from Him, we will never discern spiritual truths. It begins with Him. And He can gift to us the ability to discern those things that we can't on our own. But it doesn't matter how hard you study. You will not understand God's will until you understand who Jesus is. He's trying to help Nicodemus get there. And I'm trying to help us get there in this lesson. Who is Jesus? It's the question John wants us to ask in every single story. When we read these encounters Jesus has with people, they're surprising in a number of different ways. They're primarily about Jesus, but what do we naturally do whenever you read a narrative? Can you remember when you were younger reading fictional books for the first time? Uh, we had the Binghams over last night, and they were talking about a book that Austin's reading right now that he really likes, right? What do you do when you read those books? You have a tendency of kind of putting yourself 
in the place of the main protagonist, right? Kind of imagine yourself in that situation, and we, we start to connect with the main character in emotional ways. Well, the Gospels are written a little bit differently than that because we're not supposed to put ourselves in the position of Jesus. We're supposed to be in awe of who Jesus was. But yet, there is a place we can insert ourselves into these stories, and that's the place of the people Jesus was interacting with. And I think that's what we do naturally. John chapter 4, when Jesus appears to the, the Samaritan woman at the well, we have this tendency of putting ourselves in that position, and the question we're asking is, how would I have reacted had Jesus talked to me this way? And I would encourage you to ask that question here. How would you have reacted had Jesus had this conversation with you? Did Nicodemus ever fully grasp who Jesus was and come to full faith in his identity? It's a question that Scripture leaves wide open. And like I said at the beginning of the lesson, I think it does that on purpose so that when we put ourselves in the position of Nicodemus, we're forced to ask that same question. Have I come to terms with the identity of Jesus? Do I acknowledge who he is? And in doing so, am I opening myself up to spiritual truths that I wouldn't otherwise understand? Or am I still stuck reading these passages saying, I don't get it, somebody help me understand. So here's the invitation for you this morning. Will you accept who Jesus is? Will you accept that he is the Son of God? That he is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One? That he is the fulfillment of all those promises God had been making to Israel for generations? That he is Lord and Savior? That he is King of Kings? Are you ready to accept that reality? That is where faith begins. The acknowledgement of the identity of Jesus. Are you willing to put your trust in his identity? And then the question that follows is this. Are you ready to follow him? And that is the challenge presented to us in the Gospels when we learn what following Jesus really looks like. But it starts with a step, doesn't it? It starts with one step. And we're giving you the opportunity this morning, if you haven't taken that step in your life, to take it now. We're going to stand and we're going to sing one more song. If you are ready to acknowledge who Jesus is and begin a journey of following him, what are you waiting for? Let's do that now. Won't you come forward and let us know that you're ready to make that decision while we stand and sing this song. Let's stand and sing.